Good evening. We're continuing in 2 Samuel. We're going to start at chapter 3. In verse 1, 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel, chapter 3. You'd think I'd know how to say Samuel. <laughs> Heard that name before. Verse 1, it says, The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. The word war is actually continued hostility. It doesn't mean that there was constant battling going on, but there is hostility that is developing between the house of Saul, which is now being represented by Ishbosheth, and then the house of David. The house of Saul is reigning in the northern area of Israel, the house of David is now reigning in the southern area of Judah. And so we have the one family, the nation of Israel, the children of Jacob, but there are two kingdoms, the northern and the southern, that are in hostility against each other. Now, why is there hostility against each other? What is the reason? Since we've been going through this, what do you guys think? Why is there? Don't be shy. Power. People want power. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, who came out of nowhere, kind of took on this place of authority supported by Abner, who was Saul's commander. Even though David was anointed by the prophet Samuel some 20 years plus previous to this time, people want to stay in power. That's why Saul continued to fight against David, because he didn't want to relinquish that power. And so we see that power is causing this struggle and this division between the two nations, the one family. In verse 2 through 5, it says, Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn, was, his firstborn was Amnon, the son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Caleb, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, daughter of Talmia, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. They called her Hag for short. The fifth, I, I don't know, I just said that. The fifth, Shephithiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Lethriam, the son of David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. Now, Anything stand out to you guys in these verses? Okay, six wives. And you would think that would be enough, but we're going to see later on he, he acquires more. Now, in verse 3 where it says, Absalom, the son of Mecca, daughter of Talmia, king of Geshur, 
This is a possible political alliance. That's why it's mentioned the king of Geshur here. But David starts accumulating these wives. And remember, it just said that David's house grew stronger and stronger. And this is one of the ways they considered their house growing stronger was by the amount of sons that they had. And so David is developing more and more sons. They're supposedly there to help his rule. But we start seeing that there's going to be a lot of problems in David's life because of this. And this causes us, or should, I think, to have questions, questions about what's taking place here. And so I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 21. And I want to discuss this, even though we've talked about polygamy a little bit in the past, let's talk about it a little bit more. Sure, why not? Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 15, we'll start at. And so this is God's law for the nation. And let's look at it. If a man has two wives, and he loves one but not the other, and both bear him sons, but the firstborn is the son of the wife he does not love, kind of sad, right? When he wills his property to his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn to the son of the wife he loves in preference to his actual firstborn, the son of the wife he does not love. He must acknowledge the son of his unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double share of all he has. The son is the first sign of his father's strength. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. Notice the word it starts off with, if a man has two wives. Is that curious to anyone else? It doesn't say he shouldn't. It says if. It, it, it kind of doesn't say this is wrong. It just says this is happening. Why do you think this is stated in this way. I'm just asking you guys the questions I ask myself, okay? When I read the scripture and I read something like this, I don't just go, oh, okay, there it is, and then just keep going. And you probably don't either, but maybe you say, well, it's the scripture, so we can't ask questions. I don't know where you're coming from. It's important that we do ask questions. In Deuteronomy 17, 17, the Lord says that when the king shall not have an abundance of wives, he shall not have many wives, he's not supposed to accumulate wives or gold for himself. And so we know in Deuteronomy 17, 17, that God says you're not supposed to accumulate wives. But here it says, if a man has two wives, why do you think this is here? Well, that's definitely what's taking place, you know, throughout this region where you want to make alliances or strengthen your family in the way that's going to benefit. And it was something where you can't just go out and get a job, you know, you have to basically work the land. That's the primary way of getting income. So there is that aspect where this is how you get more. But 
You see, if God is concerned, which I believe and we believe he is, because throughout the scripture, and we know that Jesus says that a man should have one wife. And so we know that God's design from Genesis 2 shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one. There's no talk about the three, what the three become, right? It's the two shall become one. Jesus says the same thing, that you shall have his wife. So we see that God's desire was this, but God cares for people. And in this time, at this place in society, this could be here for the benefit of actually the women. Even though we look at it as, oh gosh, this is a terrible thing. God is actually trying to take care of the women. This guy loves this wife, but he doesn't really love this wife. God says he's got to be responsible for this woman and for that child and can't show favorites in this regard. And so what God is actually doing is implementing things that are protecting the women. And even at this time in society, what if the wife or the woman has no means of support because she really didn't if she wasn't connected to a man? Would it be better that she starve or be married to a man who has another wife? And is God allowing the opportunity for women to be cared for? Yeah, it's not optimum, but it's God allowance for what is actually beneficial for the woman. Now, I know it's weird for us to say it's better for a woman if, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird. Just make that clear for all you men out there in our society. But at this time, it could be this is provision because this was actually a beneficial thing for the women at time. It's important to recognize that Although everything in Scripture is true, it doesn't mean that everything is right. In other words, it doesn't mean, just because God gives allowances, doesn't mean that this was the right thing to do. Or even in Ecclesiastes, where Solomon has these moments where he says, what is man? He, he goes to the earth just like the animals. After he dies, that's it. It's true that's how Solomon was feeling, but what he's saying isn't right. It isn't accurate. And when we get into this mindset of, oh, we have to justify everything that it says to make it right, we can find ourselves getting into problems. I'm not saying the scripture isn't infallible. It is. Everything is true. It's here for our learning. But when we try and justify some of the things that happened, we can find ourselves arguing actually against God and what God has stated. Because God has wanted there to be one man and one woman from the beginning of creation. He has made allowances for, even as you said, Alex, the hardness of man's heart, including the divorce. But that's not his intention. And so just because it's there, the allowance doesn't mean it's right. And just because David has multiple wives and it doesn't say anything negative about it doesn't mean it's right. It's true. This is what happened. And with our knowledge of David and his future, 
Amnon, his firstborn son, would rape his stepsister, Absalom's sister. And Absalom would kill Amnon for what he did to his sister. Absalom would then try and take over David's kingdom, as did Adonijah. This isn't a good thing. This didn't work out well. So if any of you are thinking, well, hey, maybe I can have multiple wives, it doesn't go well, okay? It's not God's intention. It didn't go well for David. In fact, in Deuteronomy 17, 17, the Lord says, don't multiply wives for yourself or gold, otherwise they will turn your heart from the Lord. And so this is here, why? Because this is the truth. This is how it was. It doesn't mean it was right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, if he would have taken her to be his wife, I suppose that he would have been responsible for that. Um, again, we see, was it worse that he sent her away in that condition or if it was her wife? I mean, it still is just a pretty rotten thing to do. You know, God had to rescue her, find her. She was dying of thirst with her baby out in the middle of the desert. Well, yeah, I mean, it was still just a rotten thing to do. You know, it still wasn't right. And so I don't know if it would have been more wrong if she was married and he would have cast her out. He still might have. And, you know, it, it was it just shows that, again, God has a plan that is the best intention. And then for probably a lot of wrong reasons, uh, we can muddle things up. And this definitely is going to muddle the waters in David's life. Although at this time, he might have done it for all the apparent right reasons. And it might have been the acceptable thing. And God doesn't say, oh, and he did something terrible here. God just tells the story. And then we get to see the fruit of this story as it unfolds. And we get to know the whole narrative as God gives us his instruction in the beginning. A man shall leave his wife. The two will become one. Jesus' words about what God has put together, let no one take apart, the two shall be one. There's definitely the intention of God for this unity to be with one person. And then we see the mess in between, okay, in all these areas. Any questions on that? That little, okay, good. We scaled through that without too many issues, I think. I was waiting for things to come flying at me, but no, they didn't. During the war, verse 6, between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner, remember Abner, he was the chief of Saul's army, had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. So Abner actually was the one who supported Abisheth to get him into this position. In verse 7, now Saul had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Aiah, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Doesn't this get better and better? Now, the reason this was a contention is because if you were going to take over the previous king's domain, this was one of the ways you showed your power. You took his women. This happened to David with his son later on. And so this was the way to try and usurp your authority over this territory is by taking his 
women and his concubine. Now, Ishbosheth accuses this to Abner, and we see Abner's response. Abner, verse 8, was angry because of what Ishbosheth said. So he answered, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David, yet now you accuse me of an offense involving this woman? May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath, and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah, from Dan, the far north, to Beersheba, which is the far south. Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner, because he was afraid of him. And so, Ishbosheth accuses Abner of this. Now, it doesn't say Abner did or didn't do this. It would appear that he did because it says that Abner had been strengthening his position in the house of Saul. Some people contend that because he was so upset that he really didn't, but he was just making an accusation. But why would Ishbosheth even make this accusation if he was afraid of Abner? And so as this takes place, there is this contention that goes on. And now Abner says, I'm done with you. And in verse 9, he says an interesting thing. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath. That's curious to me. He recognizes that God had promised something. To David. So the question is, why didn't he do this sooner? Why do you think? Give you a hint. What was the last answer to the last <laughs> power? Okay. <laughs> wanting to have authority, wanting to have power. And now, as Abner is seeing David being stronger and stronger, and the Israel kingdom becoming weaker and weaker. And now this confrontation, he says, okay, I'm done. I'm going to the other side because God's promised this to him. You know, I I think there's a lesson for us in when do we respond to, to God? Do we respond when we know what's right or do we respond when things finally become inconvenient for us and we need to change. There's that saying that people don't change until the pain of remaining the same exceeds the pain of the change. In other words, we're not going to change until it gets too unbearable and then we make the change. And so Abner should have made this change a lot sooner because he knew that God had given David the kingdom, but he didn't. Are there things that you know that you should do, but you're not doing because you don't want to let go, because you're hoping things will work out for you in some way, you're you're feeding some desire for power, some lust for, for whatever it is, even though you know God wants something else. It's best if you just do what you know God wants.
rather than argue. I was talking with someone. Someone was asking me some advice and some counseling, and as we were talking, he was telling me, you know, I've got this situation. I'm involved in this relationship with this person. And he went on to explain this relationship and how he knew that this relationship wasn't the best thing for him, that it really wasn't God's will for him to be involved with this relationship. And he said, you know, I know that this isn't what God wants, but I think that this is the better thing for me to do to stay in this relationship than the alternative. And I just stopped him. I said, wait a second. You're telling me what God wants is this, but what's better is this? Does that really make sense to you? And he stopped, you know, because we can word things so well. We can manipulate our words and say, well, you know, and we can justify, and it came to the point, really, you're telling me there's something better than what God wants for you. And he just kind of stopped and looked at me and goes, well, you put it that way, I guess, no. And I, well, I didn't put it that way, you put it that way. You told me, you know, this isn't what God wants, but you tried to justify that this is better than what God wants. You can't do that. If God wants something, it's probably the best thing for you to want too. And so here Abner should have known. And the reason Ishbosheth did not dare say anything to him was because he was afraid of him. Because Abner did hold power. But this kingdom was much weaker than David's kingdom that was getting stronger and stronger. Any thoughts on that? Can you guys relate to that in some ways, maybe? Yeah, and so now the question, too, of Abner's sincerity. How strong is this? And that's going to come into play, too, because we're going to try and get to that as well tonight. Um, verse 12, Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, Whose land is it? Make an agreement with me, and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. Good, said David. I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michal, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Remember, this is David's first original wife. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, to the king himself, son of Saul, demanding, give me my wife, Michal, whom I am betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistines' foreskins. He actually played double when we remember that. And so he makes this demand. So Ishbosheth in verse 15 gave orders and had her taken away from her husband, this guy, Peltiel, son of Laash. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Barium. Then Abner said to him, go back home. So he went back. This, this isn't one of the mighty men of the scripture, okay? I think this is really curious that so far, everything that we've read at the beginning of this chapter revolve around women. I think it's very curious. What's that? <laughs> Was there, there a saying back there? <laughs> now, why did David want his first wife back? Didn't he have enough 
why do you think he wanted McCall back or Michaels? Because she was Saul's daughter. So what would that do? Mm -hmm. And so by taking Saul's daughter, it kind of gives him exactly (laughs) power over the other people who were followers of Saul. Remember what he did with the people of Jabesh Gideon. Yeah, I think that was it, the name. He went to them and said, hey, I commend you for what you did for Saul. I'm with you. Getting their support. And so now if he gets Saul's daughter as his wife, it gives him claim to Saul's throne. See, I am related. I do have power. Plus, it was his first wife. That's got to be kind of a jab to your ego. Someone takes your wife. It sure was to this guy. Bahrumium, he was crying, and then go back home. Okay, I'll go. It's so pathetic. It's just so sad. This poor guy is going, wait, don't take my wife, don't take my wife. And he's probably crying because he thought this entitled him to some power. It probably did entitle him to some bennies from being you know, Saul's son-in-law. And now you're taking her away. I'm nobody. And that's right, go back home, you're gone. So, so he's kicked to the curb, this guy. And again, Ishbosheth, whose name, remember, means person of shame. Ishbosheth now is saying, okay, yeah, you can have her back. There's no backbone here either. He recognizes the tables are turning. In verse 17, Abner conferred. Now, another thing, too, if David asked Abner, get me my wife, this could be a test to Abner, too, to see how much power he really has. Can you really... Do you really have the power to bring me the kingdom? If you do, then you can bring me my wife. If you can't, then I don't know if I'm going to make an agreement with you. So he's probably testing the waters there as well. In verse 17, Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and said, For some time you have wanted to make David your king. Now do it. For the Lord promised David, Be by my servant David, I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to the Benjamites in person. Then he went to Hebron to tell David everything that Israel and the whole tribe of Benjamin wanted to do. When Abner, who had 20 men with him, came to David at Hebron, David prepared a feast for him and his men. Then Abner said to David, let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my lord, the king, so that they may make a covenant with you and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. So Abner's on the campaign trail. David for king, David for king, come follow David. Remember, Abner is the power that is there in the north in Israel. And so they're all rallied and say, yes, we'll support you and David. He goes to David and he goes, it's done. Let me go back, get everyone for you. You can reign as you desire. David sends him back. And then the plot thickens, verse 22. Just then, David's men and Joab returned from a raid and brought with them a great deal of plunder. But Abner was no longer with David in Hebron because David had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the soldiers with him arrived, he was told that Abner, son of Ner, had come to the king and that the king had sent him away and that he had gone in peace. So Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why did you let him go? 
Now he is gone. You know, Abner, son of Ner, he came to deceive you and observe your movements and find out everything you are doing. Now, why do you think Joab is so upset? What happened last week? He killed his brother. Now, do you think there's reason to have concern and cause to wonder if Abner is really with him or not? Shaking your heads. You guys are afraid to say yes or no. I mean, let me just ease your conscience. There's nothing that says yes or no in Scripture. This is all just talking about it, talking about the story. Why would you think there's reason to be upset or not trust him? And before he was with Ishbosheth, who was he with? He was with Saul. He was with Saul when Saul was hunting him. Okay? So, but now he says, Oh, I knew God was with you the whole time. Well, if you knew God was with me, why were you Saul? Why were you with Ishbosheth? And now why are you coming to me? And then Joab saying, He killed my brother. He was with Saul. He was with Ishbosheth. He killed my brother. And now we're bringing him here? And think of that. When someone does wrong to your family, what are your reactions? Usually it's hostile, unless you don't like the family, okay? I mean, so his motives and concerns are legitimate. Verse 26, Joab then left David and sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern at Syrah. But David did not know it. Now when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into an inner chamber as if to speak with him privately. So deception going on here. And there, to avenge the blood of his brother Ashiel, Joab stabbed him in the stomach and he died. Now, not only did Abner kill Joab's brother, but recognize too, he was also a threat to Joab's position. Here was the commander And Joab is the commander. And so there's a lot of things going on here. There's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of tension. Verse 28, later, when David heard about this, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. May his blood fall on the head of Joab and on his whole family. May Joab's family never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy. I think that's interesting curse there. Or who leans on a crutch. In other words, I want someone always to be sick, diseased, crippled, or fall by the sword, or who lacks food. This I want someone in his family to always be starving, sick, crippled, or diseased. That's what David says. Now, you see, there had just been a huge alliance made with Abner. And now that alliance could fall apart depending on how David responds. And so here's how David responds. He responds on this curse to Joab. Verse 30, Joab and his brother Abishiah murdered Abner because he had killed their brother Ashiel in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and all the people with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and walk in mourning in front of Abner. King David himself walked behind the bear and they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb. All the people wept also. The king sang this lament for Abner. So he even wrote a little ditty for him. It's not one of his better ones, but here's one that he wrote. 
Should Abner have died as the lawless die? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. You fell as one falls before the wicked. That was the song. And all the people wept over him again. Then they all came and urged David to eat something while it was still day. But David took an oath saying, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I taste bread or anything else before the sun sets. Verse 36 is important. All the people took note and were pleased. Indeed, everything the king did pleased them. So on that day, all the people there and all Israel knew that the king had no part in the murder of Abner, son of Ner. That's important. Then the king said to his men, do you not realize that a commander and a great man has fallen in Israel this day? And today, though I am the anointed king, I am weak. And these sons of Zerai are too strong for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil deeds. David, again, is being very diplomatic here. He's wanting to make sure that this alliance doesn't fall apart. And he's also making a recognition that someone who was valuable died. Someone who was valuable to me died. And David is wanting to utilize all that is available to him. This is what made him such a great king, is that he was able to recognize the things that were of value and utilize them. Plus, he was able to bring peace to the people and please them, even in this time of contention. What I think is interesting here is even though he pronounces this curse on Joab, does he punish him? No. He still uses him as the commander of his army. Just think that's interesting. Okay, just interesting. Okay, we're going to get through chapter 4 because it's real real short. Verse 1, chapter 4. When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage. That was his strength. And all Israel became alarmed. Now Saul's sons, Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. One was named Banna and the other Rechab. They were sons of Rimon, the Berathite, from the tribe of Benjamin, Beroth, is considered part of Benjamin. So they're from Saul's tribe. Because the people of Beroth fled to get him, and have resided there as foreigners to this day. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame at both feet. He was five years old when news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Meshibbeth. Okay, yeah, Mephibosheth. Now, do you know what his name means? No? Well, remember, Ishbosheth mean a person of shame. Mephibosheth, his name actually means shameful breath. Now, there's probably a reason for it. It wasn't just because he had bad breath. When it's 
notice that his nurse who cared for him had to pick him up and flee. Now, why did she flee? Because as soon as Saul and Jonathan died, she knew that he had a right to the throne. And if people were to want to take over, they would kill him. But five-year-olds usually can actually run pretty good or at least keep up with the nurse. The odds are that he probably had asthma or something and he couldn't breathe. And so the idea of shameful breath had to do that he did not have the ability to breathe well. That's why the nurse picked him up and tried to run, fell, something happened, and he was crippled at that point. Yes. How do they know? It might have been his labor in breathing at that point. They become like that. Yeah, watch out what you name your kid. <laughs> Short and stout. <laughs> That's my name. That's who I am. Um, yeah, I think it was this point. It was because of you know his labored breathing, and so they called him that. You know, a lot of times as they would see them, you know, like Esau red. You know, oh, he's hairy and he had a lot of hair, so we'll name him how we see him. And so they might be that. And I think we put on that, like what we say, uh, who has bad breath. I mean, that's how shameful breath, we think of bad breath, but I don't think that shameful meant what it means to us, you know, or a person of shame. It probably didn't mean, oh, he's a shame. It might have meant there was something that wasn't right. And so they called it shame. We interpret it in that way. Anyway, I just thought that was an interesting note to share with you. Um, now, verse 5, Rechab and Banna, the sons of Rimmon, the Berothite, these names, set out for the house of Ishbosheth. And they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. They went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. They keep stabbing him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Bana slipped away. They had gone into the house while he was lying on the bed in his bedroom. After they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head, taking it with them. They traveled all night by the way of Arabah. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to kill you. This day the Lord has avenged my lord, the king, against Saul and his offspring. Now, how do you think this is going to go with David? Now, well, didn't someone else tried this before, right? I brought, here's the crown and the, the dressing for Saul. I brought it to you because you're now king. What happened? I killed him. And they killed him. And so these guys probably didn't hear that story. It, they didn't get online. There was no text message. Don't do that. David don't like these things. So they just get over. David will surely like this. Now, why are they taking this to David? Why did they do this? Pa- Probably power, right? They wanted some kind of power into the kingdom. It's amazing the things that drive people. Okay? It's kind of the common thing that takes place here. And so they go present this to David. Verse 9, David answered Rechab, his brother Banna, the sons of Rimmon and the Berothite, as surely as the Lord lives who has delivered me out of every trouble, 
When someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I now not, not, not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? Imagine their face and countenance after they hear that. Oh, bummer. <laughs> Verse 12, so David gave an order to his men and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. There's probably no swimming that day. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. Crazy stuff. Ishbosheth is now buried with Abner, the one who is actually going against him. They're buried together, kind of this memorial. This was what was that other kingdom, and it, it's dead and it's buried. The killing of these people, the cutting off their hands and feet, was that of shame. They're like thieves, and so they're shaming them and putting them up. They didn't cut off their heads. They wanted them to know who these men were and that they died a shameful death. That was the whole point of this. And so in the period of time, there's a lot taking place that is shifting the kingdom over to David, who it was supposed to be given to all along. How many people died? How many things, dreadful things, happened? Because Saul did not want to relinquish power. Because pride held on, even though, because Saul's own words admitted, David, you are the one God has anointed. All these things that we've been reading could have been spared if one man would have just humbled himself, relinquished the power that he had to another. Do you realize what a powerful illustration that is for us? if we will relinquish the control of our lives to another, to Jesus, the true king. How many years of heartache and shame can we spare ourselves and those around us if we would humble ourselves and not be proudful, not hold on to what we think we deserve in our integrity and wanting to have control of whatever it is in our lives. How much hurt do we cause ourselves because of our pride? Because of wanting to be in control of our own lives, wanting that kind of power. I think it's a powerful example to us, an illustration of how harmful pride really is wanting to be that person in power of our own lives. Any thoughts on these two chapters? Fun, huh? It's kind of, yeah, not for these guys. Anything stand out to you in these two chapters or any questions you have? 
Wow, we've tackled a lot. We've tackled polygamy. We've tackled murder. We've tackled bad breath and all kinds of things. Okay. Well, let's pray. Father, I talk in jest about some of these things, but in truth, these are powerful lessons. Lord, to realize that for 20 years there has been devastation and destruction that has been a clear example of the sins of the father being passed down to Saul's children and even his grandchildren. Lord, because of his pride, because of wanting to hold on to his power. And Lord, may we listen to your voice speaking to us through these words and these stories. May we identify, Lord, with the things that apply to us and how we can learn from these things. And Lord, may we humble ourselves. May we let go. May we not hold on with our pride, Father. May we, when we see the work of your Spirit taking place, may we yield to him, surrender to him, and allow that to become the priority. Lord, may we never see your work as being something that we can take possession of and claim for our own, but may we desire to give. Freely we have been given, freely may we give. And Lord, may you flourish your kingdom as we relinquish power to others and empower the people around us to continue the work of your kingdom, Lord. We thank you again for your goodness. Bless tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.